The first breakthrough to incontrovertibly human-level AGI to a superintelligence is months to years. Will that be good or bad for humanity? To me, these are less clear than what I think is the probable timeline. Yosha Bach is known for his insights into consciousness and cognitive architectures, and Ben Gortzel is a seminal figure in the world of artificial general intelligence and known for his work on Open Cog. Both are coming together here on Theories of Everything for a theolocution. A theolocution is an advancement of knowledge couched both in tenderness and regard, rather than the usual tendency of debates, which is characterized by trying to be correct even to the detriment of the other person, maybe even destructively, maybe even sardonically. We have a foray in this episode into semantics and Pierce's sign theory. This also extends into what it truly takes to build a conscious AGI. An AGI is an artificial general intelligence which mimics human-like intelligence. But then the question lingers, what about consciousness? What differentiates mere computation from awareness? Man, this was a fascinating discussion and there will definitely be a part two. Recall the system here on Toe, which is if you have a question for any of the guests, whether here or on a different podcast, you leave a comment with the word query and a colon. And this way, when I'm searching for the next part with the guest, I can just press Control F and I can find it easily in the YouTube Studio backend. And then I'll cite your name either aloud, verbally, or in the description. To those of you who are new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungal and this is Theories of Everything, where we explore usually physics and mathematics related theories of everything. How do you reconcile quantum mechanics with general relativity, for instance? That's the standard archetype of a toe. But also, more generally, where does consciousness come in? What role does it have to play in fundamental law? Is fundamental, quote unquote, the correct philosophical framework to evaluate explanatory frameworks for the universe and ourselves? We've also spoken to Yosha three times before, one solo, that episode's Linked in the description, another time with John Verveke and Yoshibach, and another time with Donald Hoffman and Yoshibach. That was a legendary episode. Also, Ben Gortzel has given a talk on this program, which was filmed at Mindfest, which was a conference about artificial intelligence and consciousness. If you enjoy the topics of mathematics, physics, consciousness, AI, free will, and philosophy, then consider subscribing to get notified. Enjoy this episode with Yoshibach and Ben Gortzel. Welcome. This is going to be so much fun. Many, many people are very much looking forward to this, including me, including yourselves. Welcome to the Theories of Everything podcast. I appreciate you all coming back on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I always enjoy discussing with Ben. It's uh, it's always been fun. And uh, it's, I think the first time we are on a podcast together. Yes, wonderful. So let's bring some of those off-air discussions to the forefront. How did you all meet? Uh, we met first at the AGI conference in Memphis. Ben had organized it, and I went there because I wanted to work on AI in the traditional Minsky sense, and that worked on a cognitive architecture. My uh, PI didn't really like it, so I paid my own way to this conference to publish it, and I found uh, like-minded people there, and foremost among them was Ben. Great. What's something, Ben, that you've changed your mind about in the past six months in this field, this AGI field, or... AI field? And then, Yosha, the question will go to you right afterward. I don't think I've changed my mind about anything major related to AGI in the last six months, but certainly seeing how well LLMs have have worked over the last nine months or so has has been quite, quite interesting. I mean, it's not that they've worked a hundred times better than that than I thought they would or something, but but certainly just how far you can go 
by this sort of non-AGI system that manages together a huge, huge amount of uh, of data from the web is has been quite interesting to see. And it's revised my opinion on how much of the global economy may be converted to AI even before we get before we get to AGI, right? So that, that that's it's shifted my thinking on hmm. on that a bit, but not so much on fundamentally how how do you build an, an AGI? Because I think these systems are somewhat off to the side of that, although they may usefully serve as as components of integrated AGI systems. And Yosha. Uh, well, I have some things that changed my mind are outside of the topic of AGI. Um, I thought a lot about um, uh, the way in which uh, psychology was conceptualized in Greece, for instance. But uh, I think that's maybe too far out here. And in terms of AI, um, I looked into some kind of new learning algorithms that fascinate me and uh, that are more brain-like and move a little bit beyond the perceptron and uh, I'm making slow and steady progress in this area. It's not, doesn't feel like there is a big singular breakthrough that dramatically changed my thinking in the last six months. But, uh, I feel that, uh, there is an area where we begin to understand more and more things. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's get to some of the comparisons between you all, the contrasting ones. It's my understanding that Yosha, you have more of the mindset of everything is computation or all is computation. And Ben, you believe there to be other categories. I believe you refer to them as archetypal categories, or I may have done that. And I'm unsure if this is a fair assessment, but please elucidate me. Uh, I, th I think that everything that we think it happens in some kind of language. And perception also happens in some kind of language. And a language cannot refer to anything outside of itself. And in order to be uh, semantically meaningful, a language cannot have contradictions. It is possible to use a language where you have figured out how to resolve all the contradictions as long as you have some hope that there is a way to do it. But if a language is self-contradictory, its terms don't mean anything. And the languages that work, that we can use to describe anything, any kind of reality and so on, turn out to be representations that we can describe via state transitions. And the uh, number of ways in which we can conceptualize systems that are uh, doing state transitions, for instance, we can think about whether they are deterministic or indeterministic, whether they are linear or branching. And uh, this uh, allows us to think of these uh, representational languages as a taxonomy, but they all turn out to be constructive. That means in modern parlance, computational. There was a branch of uh, mainstream of mathematics was uh, not constructive before Goethe. Uh, that means uh, language uh, of mathematics allowed to specify things that cannot be implemented. And computation is the part that can be implemented. I think for something to be existent, it needs to be implemented in some form. And that means it uh, we can describe it in some kind of constructive language. That's basically the sort uh, Rhinuses has to do with epistemology and uh, the epistemology determines the metaphysics that I can have because when I think about what reality is about, I need to do this in a language in which my words mean things. Otherwise, what am I talking about? What am I pointing at? And when I'm pointing at, I'm pointing at the representation that is basically a mental state that my own mind represents and projects into some kind of uh, a conceptual space or some kind of perceptual space that we might share with others. And in all these cases, we have to think about representations. 
And then I can ask myself, how is this representation implemented in uh, whatever substrate it is? And what does this signify about reality? And what is reality and what is significance? And all these terms turn out to be terms that, again, I need to describe in a language that is constructive, that is computational. And in this sense, I am a strong computationalist because I believe that if we try to use non-computational terms to describe reality, and it's not just because we haven't gotten around to formalizing them yet, but because we believe that we found something that is more than this, we are fundamentally confused and our words don't mean things. Mm -hmm. And Ben? Um, I, 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 I think that... Uh Yeah, I tend to start from a different perspective on all this philosophically. I mean, I think there there's one minor technical point I feel a need to quibble with than what Yosha said, and and then I'll try to outline my my point of view from a more fundamental perspective. I mean, the the point I want to quibble with is it was stated that if a logic or language contains contradictions, it's meaningless. I mean, there, of course, that's not true. There's a whole discipline of paraconsistent logics, which have, which have contradictions in them and yet are not meaningless. And there, there are constructive paraconsistent logics. And you, you can actually use, you know, Curry Howard transformations or op operational semantics transformations to map paraconsistent logical formalisms in, into, gradually type programming languages and so forth. So, I mean, contradictions are not necessarily fatal to having meaningful semantics to a logical or computational framework. And this is something that's actually meaningful in my approach to AGI on the technical level, which we may get into later. But I, but I want to I wanna shift back to the foundation of uh, life, the universe, and, and, and everything here. So, I mean, I, I, I tend to be phenomenological in my approach more 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 so than uh starting from a model of model of reality and these sorts of things become hard to put into words and language because once you project them into words and language then yeah you have a language because you're talking in language right but but talking isn't all there is to life it isn't all there is to all there is to, to experience. And I think the philosopher Charles Peirce gave one fairly clear articulation of some of the points I want to make. You could just as well look at Lao Tzu, or you could look at the Vedas, or the the book uh, Bo Bo Buddhist Logic by uh, Strabotsky, which gives similar perspectives from a from a from a different cultural background. So if you take Charles Peirce's point of view, which at least is concise he he distinguishes a number of metaphysical categories and i don't follow him exactly but let me start with him so he starts with first by which he means quelia like raw raw unanalyzable just it's there right and then he conceives second by which he means reaction like billiard ball bounces off each other. It's just one thing is reacting to something else, right? And that this is how he's looking at sort of the crux of classical physics, let's say. Then by what Peirce calls third, he means relationships. So one thing is relating to other things. And one of the insights that Charles Peirce had writing in the late 1800s was that, 
you know, once you can relate three things, you can relate four, five, six, ten, like a, any any large finite num- finite number of things, which was just a, just you know a version of what's very standard now of of, of reducing a large number of log- logical relations to sort of tri- triples or something, right? So, Peirce looked at first, second, and third as fundamental metaphysical categories and. He invented quantifier logic as well, with a for all and there exists and quantifier binding. So he, as Peirce would look at it, computation and logic are in the realm of third. And if you're looking in that metaphysical category of third, then you're saying, well, yeah, everything's a relationship. On the other hand, if you're looking for within, from within the metaphysical category of second, you're looking at it like, well, everything's just reactions. If you're looking at it from within the metaphysical category of first, then it's like, whoa, it's all just there, right? And you could take any of those points of view and it's valid in itself. Now, you could extend beyond person's categories. You could say, well, I'm going to be a Zen Buddhist and have a category of zero, like the unanalyzable pearly void, right? Or, or you could go Jungian and say, okay, these are numerical archetypes, one, two, three. But then we have the archetype of four, which is, is sort of, synergy and, and emergence. It's sort of mandalic. Yeah, what, what, so what I was saying is Peirce, Peirce had these three metaphysical categories, which he viewed as just ontologically, metaphysically distinct from each other. So what, what Chalmers would call the hard problem of consciousness in Persian language is like, how do you collapse third to first? And Peirce would be just like, well, you 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 don't. They're different. They're different categories. You're an idiot to think that you can somehow collapse one to the other. So in in that sense, he was a dualist, although more than a dualist because he had first, second, and third. Now I think you could go beyond that if you want. You could go Zen Buddhist and say, well, we have a zero category of the you know the original ineffable self contradictory pearly void, and then then you have the question of is zero really the same as one, which is like the the Zen Buddhist paradox of non dualism and so forth in a certain form. You can you can also go above Persis three metaphysical categories and you can say, okay, well, why not four? Fourth. Well to to Carl Jung, four was the archetype of of synergy and many mandalas were based on this fourfold Synergy. Why not five? Well, five. You have the fourfold synergy, and then the birth of something new out of it, right? So, I, I, I can see that the perspective of third, the perspective of computation, is substantially where you want to focus if you're engineering an AGI system, right? Because you're writing a program, and the pro- the program, the program is a set of of logical relationships. The program is written in a language, so I don't I don't have any disagreement that this is like the the focal point when you're engineering an, an AGI system. But if I want to intuitively conceptualize the AGI's experience, I don't feel a need to like try to reduce the whole metaphysical hierarchy into into third just because the program code lives there. And I mean this is this is sort of a it's not so much about AI or mathematical or computational formalism. I mean, th- th- these are just different philosophical perspectives, which it becomes arduous to talk about because natural language terms are are imprecise and and, and amb- ambiguous and 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 slippery, and you could end up spending a career trying to articulate what is really meant by relationship or something. All right, Yosha. 
I think it comes down to the way in which our thinking works and what we think thinking is. You could uh, have one approach that is uh, radically trying to build things from first principles. And when we learn how to write computer programs, this is what we might be doing. When I started programming, I had a Commodore 64. I was a kid. I didn't know how to draw a line. Commodore 64 is basic, doesn't have a command to draw a line. What you need to draw a line on the Commodore 64 is you need to learn a particular language. And this language, in this case, is basic. You can also learn assembler directly. But it's not hard to see how assembler maps to the machine code of the computer. And the machine code works in such a way that you have a short uh, sequence of bits organized into uh, groups of eight, a byte. And uh, these bytes are interpreted as commands by the computer. They basically... Uh, like switches uh, or train tracks. You could imagine every bit determines whether a train track goes to the left or to the right. And after you go through eight switches, you have 256 terminals where you can end, right? So if you have two options to switch left or right, and in each of these terminals, you have a circuit, some kind of mechanism that performs a small change in the computer. And these changes are chosen in such a way that you can build arbitrary programs from them. And when you want to make a line, you need to uh, learn a few of these constructs that you use to manipulate the computer. And first of all, in the Commodore 64, you need to write a value in a certain address of that corresponds to a function on the video chip of the computer. And this makes the video chip forget how to draw characters on screen and instead interpret a part of the memory of the computer as pixels that are to be displayed on the screen. And then you need to tell it which address in working memory you want to start by writing two values into the graphic chip, which are in code for a 16-bit address in the computer. And then you can find the bits in your working memory that correspond to pixels on the screen. And uh, then you need to make a loop that uh, addresses them all in order, and then you can draw a line. And uh, once I understood this, I basically had a mapping from an algebraic equation into automata. That was this was the computer is doing. It's an automaton at the lowest level that is uh, performing geometry. And uh, once you can draw lines, you figure out also how to draw um, curved shapes, and then you can draw uh, 3D shapes, and you can easily derive how to make that. And I did these things as a kid, and then I thought the mathematicians have some kind of advanced way, some kind of um, way in which I deeply understand what geometry is in, in ways that goes far beyond what I am doing. And math mathematics teachers had the same belief. They basically were gesturing at some kind of mythological mountain of mathematics, where there was some deep inscrutable knowledge on how to do continuous geometry, for instance. And it was much, much later that I started to look at this mountain and realized that it was doing the same thing that I did on my Commodore 64, just with Greek notation. And uh, there's a different tradition behind it, uh, but it was basically the same code that I have been using. And when I was confronted with notions of space and continuous space and many other things, I was confronted with a conundrum. I thought I can do this in my computer that looks like it, but there can be no actual space because I don't know how to construct it. I cannot make something that is truly continuous. And I also don't observe anything in reality around me that is fundamentally different from what I can observe in my computer to the degree that I can understand and implement it. So how does this other stuff work? 
And so imagine somebody has an idea of how to do something in a way that is fundamentally different from what could be in principle done in computers. And I ask them how this is working. It, it goes into hand waving. And then you point at some proofs that have been made that show that the particular hand waving that they hope to get to work does not pan out. And then I hope there is some other solution to make that happen because they have the strong intuition. And I ask, where does this intuition come from? How did it actually get into your brain? And then you look at how does their brain work? There is firing between neurons. There is interaction with sensory patterns on the systemic interface to the universe. How were they able to make inferences that go beyond the inferences that I can make? But this is uh, one way of looking at it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, this and this one is more or less in the middle, there is a degraded form of epistemology, which is you just make noises, and if other people let you get away with it, you're fine. And right, so you just make sort of grunts and hand wavy movements, and you try to point at things, and you don't care about how anything of it works, and if a large enough group of high-status people is nodding, you're good. And uh, this epistemology of what you can get away with uh, is... Uh, doesn't look very appealing to me because people are very good at being wrong in groups. Yeah, I, I, I mean, saying that the only thing there is is language because the only thing we can talk about in language is is language. I mean, this is sort of tautologist in in, in, in a way, right? But no, no, that's I, that's I, not I, quite I, what I'm saying. I'm not saying the only thing there is is language, of course. Language is a, just a representation. It's a way to talk about things and to think about things and uh, to model things. And uh, obviously not everything is a model, just everything that they can refer to as a model. And uh, so uh, there is... Uh, well, that, 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 I mean... Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. You can't know that, right? You can you can hypothesize that, but you can't you can't know that. And th- th- this gets into, I guess it depends what but you mean I cannot by- know anything that I cannot express. I can know many things I can't express in language, but um, I mean that, that's that's just, it's a, I guess, a different flavor of of knowing, subjective ex- ex- experience. I, I, I mean, so take take what Martin uh, Buber called a, an "I thou" experience, right? I mean, if you're if you're staring into someone's eyes, 
and you have a deep experience that you're you're seeing that person and you're just sharing a shared space of of experience and 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 being i mean in that moment that is something you both know you're not going to be able to communicate fully in in language and it's experientially there now Buber wrote a bunch of words about it, right? And those words communicate something special to me and to some other people. But of, of, of course, someone else reads the words that he wrote and says, well, you, you are merely summarizing some collection of firings of, neuro, of neurons in, 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 in your brain and in some strange way deluding yourself that, 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 that is something else, right? So, I mean, that, that, that's... Uh, I mean, I think from within the domain of computation and science, you can neither prove nor disprove that there exists something beyond beyond the range of computation and and science. And if you if you look at scientific data, I mean, the whole compendium of scientific data ever gathered by the whole human race is one large finite bit set, basically. I mean, it's a large. It's a large set of data points with with finite precision to each each piece of data. So I mean, it might not even be that huge of a computer file if you if you try to if you try to assemble it all. Like all the all the scientific experiments ever done and agreed by some community of scientists. So you so you've got this big finite bit set, right? So and then science, in a way, is trying to come up with you know concise, reasonable looking, culturally acceptable explanations for this huge finite bit set that can be used to predict outcomes of other experiments and which finite collection of bits will will emerge from those other experiments in a way that, that's accepted by a certain by a certain community now that that's that's a certain process it's a thing to do it has to do with finite bit sets and computational models for for producing Finite bits, right, and the finite sets of bits, and that—that's—that's that's great. That nothing within that process is going to tell you that that's all there is to 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 the universe, or that that isn't all there is to the universe. Uh, I, I mean, it's a val- its a valuable, important thing. Now, to me, as an experiencing mind, I feel like there's a lot of steps I have to get to the point where I even know what a finite bit set is or where i even know like what what a community of people validating that finite bit set is real is or what or what a what a programming language is so i mean i, I keep coming back to my phenomenal experience like first there's this this field of of nothingness or contradictory nothingness that's just floating there then some indescribable forms flicker and emerge emerge out of this Void, and then you get have some complex pattern of forms there, which constitutes a notion of, you know, a bit set or an experiment or, or or a computation. And from from this phenomenological view, by the time you get to this business of computing and languages, you're already dealing with a fairly complex like body of self organizing forms and distinctions that 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 popped out of the void, and then then this conglomeration of forms. That in some ineffable way has emerged out of the void is selling no. I am I am everything. The only thing that exists in a fundamental sense is what is inside me. And I, I mean, you can't if you're inside that thing, you can't you can't refute or really demonstrate that. But again, from 
from an AGI view, it's all fine. Because when we talk about building an AGI, what we're talking about is precisely engineering a set of computational processes. Like I, I don't, I don't think you need to do. So, like you, you don't you don't need some special first tronium to drop into your computer to give to give the the AGI the the fundamental qualia of, of, of experience or something. Okay, I mean, there are two points now. Let me briefly interject so we please, don't please. forget. Okay, let's just allow Yosha to speak because there are quite a few threads and some may be dropped. Also, it appears as if you're using different definitions of knowledge. If we use this traditional philosophical notion of justified true belief, it means that I have to use knowledge in a context where I can hope to have a notion of what's true. <clears throat> so, for instance, when I look at your face and I experience a deep connection with you and I report I know we have this deep connection, I'm not using the word know in the same sense. What I am describing is an observation. I'm uh, observing that I seem to be looking at a face and then observing that I have the experience of uh, having a deep connection. And I think I can to uh, hope to report on this truthfully. I'd, but I don't know whether it's true that we have that deep connection. Right? I, I cannot actually know this. I can make some experiments to show how aligned we are and how connected we are and so on to say uh, this uh, perception or uh, this imagination has some veracity. But here I'm referring to a set of patterns. Right? So there are dynamic patterns that I perceive, and then there is stuff that I can reflect on and disassemble and talk about and convey and model. And this uh, is a distinct uh, category in, in a sense. It's not in contradiction necessarily what you're saying. It's just using the word knowing in different ways uh, is implied here because I can uh, relate the pattern to you that I'm observing or that I think I'm observing. But this is a statement about my mental state. It's not a statement about something in reality, about uh, the world. And to make statements about the world, I probably need to go beyond perception. The second aspect that we are now getting to is when you say that reality and minds might have properties that are not computational, yet your AGI is uh, entirely computational and doesn't need any kind of uh, first principles wonder machine built into it uh, that goes beyond what we can construct from automata. Um, are you establishing that AGIs, artificial general intelligence with potentially superhuman capabilities, are going to still lagging behind what your mind is capable of? No, no, not not, not at all. I just think the other aspects are are there are there anyway, and you don't need to build them. So I mean, so you need you... to make the, you're going to make the non-computational parts of reality using computation. No, you don't have to make them. They're they're already there. I mean, if you if you take just just take a more simple point of view where you're thinking about first and third, and Peirce was basically a panpsychist, right? So he believed that matter is mind hidebound with habit, as he said. He he believed that every little particle had its own spark or element of of consciousness and and awareness in it. So I mean, from that standpoint. I mean, this this can of bubbly water that I'm holding up has its own variety of conscious awareness to it, which is has a di different properties in the conscious awareness in, in my brain or yours. So from from that from that standpoint, if I build an AGI program that has something around the same patterns and structures and dynamics as as a human 
brain and as the sort of computational aspect of the human mind from from that from that standpoint then most likely the same sort of firstness the same species of subjective awareness will will be associated with that AGI machine that that you've built but it's it's not that you needed to to construct it i mean any more than you need to explicitly construct like the positioning in time of your computer or something like you 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 build something it's already there in time you don't have to build time i mean you just build it and it's there it's there it's there in time you didn't need a theory of time and you didn't need to screw together moment t to moment t plus one either uh, the, the the perspective is more that awareness is is ambient and and, and it, it, it's it's there you don't you don't need to build it now the, of course there's subtlety that different sorts of constructions may have different sorts of awareness associated with them and there's philosophical subtlety in how do you treat different kinds of first when you're operating at a level where relationship doesn't doesn't exist yet right like in what sense is the experience of red different from the experience of of, of blue even though Articulating that difference already brings you into the realm of, of, of third, right? And this gets back to, it gets back to non-duality and a bunch of stuff that Peirce wrote hundreds of pages about, right? right? But I haven't read these pages, so I don't really understand them. I, I think it's, uh, conceivable that, uh, particles are conscious or are intelligent, uh, but this would require that they have, uh, or imply they have more complicated causal structure than the computer that I'm currently using to communicate with you. And while that's possible, I seem, it seems to me that it's, uh, that there are simpler ways in which particles could be constructed to do the things that they are doing. It seems to me sufficient that there are basically emergent error correcting codes on the quantum substrate and uh, would just emerge over, uh, the stuff that remains statistically predictable in um, a branching multiverse. I don't need uh, to be conscious to do anything like that. Maybe if we do um, more advanced physics, we figure out, oh no, this error correcting code that just emerges, similar to a vortex emerges in the bathtub when you uh, move your hand and only the vortex remains and everything else dissipates in the wave background that you are producing in the chaos uh, and turbulences. It, it could be, uh, to me, possible that particles are like this. They're little stable twirls, vortices that stabilize after the non-stable stuff is dissipating. Mm. And uh, to achieve this, I don't think that I need to posit that they are conscious. If uh, no, I, uh, so, so it could be that I figure out, oh no, this is not sufficient. We need way more complicated mass and structure to make this happen. So they need some kind of coherence improving operator that, uh, is self-reflexive and, uh, eventually leads to the structure. Then, uh, I would say, yeah, maybe this is a theory that we should seriously entertain. Until then, I'm undecided and Occam's razor says I can construct uh, what I observe uh, uh, at this level of elementary particles, atoms, and so on, by assuming that they don't have any of the conscious functionality that exists in my own mind. And uh, the other way would be you can redefine the notion of consciousness into some principle of self-organization that is super basic. But this would redefine consciousness into something else, because there's a lot of self-organizing stuff that does not fall into the same category that an anesthesiologist makes go away when he gives you an anesthetic. Right. To me, consciousness is that thing which seems to be suspended when you get an anesthetic and that stops you from learning and currently interacting with the world. I mean, that 
at least gives me a chance to repeat once again my favorite quote from uh, Bill Clinton, former U.S. president, which is a that all depends what the meaning of is is, <laughs> right? So, I'm, 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 I'm in. There, there's That's a- interesting, Ben, because the first time, Yosha, I don't know if you remember, I brought up that quote. I don't remember the context, but I said, yeah, that also depends on what is is. The question is, what do you mean by is, right? So, uh, visit the story. It sounds like, it sounds like Bill Clinton. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. The previous podcast with Yosha Bach as a solo episode is linked in the description, as well as the previous podcast with Ben Solo, as well as Yosha Bach with Donald Hoffman and Yosha Bach with John Verveke. Every link, as usual, to every source mentioned in this podcast on every single Toe podcast is in the description. Yeah, I, I, I mean, a cu- couple reactions there, and I, I feel I may have lost something in the in the in the buffering process there, but. I I I I I, th- I think that let 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 me see so that first of all about causality and firstness or a raw experience I mean almost by definition of how Peirce sets up his metaphysical categories i mean the firstness doesn't cause anything so you're, you're not going to come up with a case where like I, i i i need to assume that this particle has experience or else i can't explain why this experiment came out this way i i mean i mean that 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 would be a sort of category error in 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 Peirce's perspective so if if the only if the only sort of thing you're willing to attribute existence to is something which has a demonstrable causal impact on some experiment then by that assumption i mean that that's essentially equivalent to the perspective you're putting forth that everything is 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 computation yeah and and Peirce Peirce didn't think other categories besides third were of that nature. Now, the, there's also a just shallow semantic matter tied into this, which is the word consciousness is just highly a- a- ambiguous. So, I mean, Yosha, you seem to just assume that human-like consciousness is consciousness. And I don't really care if people want to reserve the word consciousness for that. Then we just need... So, some other word for the sort of ambient awareness and everything in the universe, right? So the, there's lengthy debates among academics on like, okay, do we say a particle is conscious or do we say it's proto-conscious, right? So then you can say, okay, we have proto-consciousness versus consciousness, or we have like raw consciousness versus reflexive consciousness or human-like consciousness. And I mean... I spent a while reading all the stuff I wrote, some things about it. In, in, in the end, I'm just like, this is a, this is a game that overly intellectual people are, are playing to, to entertain themselves. And it, it, it doesn't really matter. Like I've got, I've got my experience of the universe. I know what I need to do to build AGI systems and arguing about which words to associate with different flavors and levels of experience uh, is, 
you're just kind of kind of running mm -hmm. around in circles. Right? But of course, for me, yeah. conceptually, it's an important question: is this camera that is currently filming my face and representing it, and then relaying it to you, aware of what it's doing? And is this just a matter of degree with respect to my consciousness? Is this representing some kind of ambient awareness of the universe? And are particles doing the same thing? And so on. These are questions that I, I think I can answer. And if I don't answer them, my thinking will become so mushy that my thoughts are meaningless, and I will not be able to construct anything. I mean, if the only kind of answer that you're interested in are rigorous scientific answers, then you have your answer by assumption, right? And uh, I, I mean, answering questions by assumption is fine. It's practical. It saves our time, right? It's, uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, you, I mean, you will. No, I think that's what you're doing. I, I don't see how you're not just trying to answer by assumption. You posit that uh, elementary particles uh, are conscious. Uh, when I point out that we normally reserve the word consciousness for something that is well, really you, interesting and fascinating and shocking to us. You mean and you, that uh, you, it would uh, even be more shocking if it projected way. into the elementary particles. And then you say, okay, but I just mean ambient awareness. Now we have to disassemble what ambient awareness actually means. What is aware here? What, uh, what uh. does this awareness come down to? And uh, I think that you're pointing at something that I don't want to dismiss. I want to take you seriously here. So uh, there maybe there is something to what you are saying, but you're not getting away with simply um, waving at it and say uh, this is sufficient to explain my experience and I'm no longer interested to make my words mean things. Because they cannot communicate otherwise. We will not be able to uh, see what idea you actually have, what idea you're trying to convey, and how it relates to ideas that other people might have. And I'm not I mean, pointing at the institutions of science here, which don't agree on what consciousness is, and for the most part don't care. Uh, this is more a philosophical question here. And yeah. uh, it's also one that is an existential question but that we have to negotiate among the two or the three of us. Yeah, let's just let Ben respond. I mean, I guess... Rightly or wrongly, as a human being, I've gotten bored with that question in the same way that, like, I couldn't say it's worthless. At some point, maybe you could convince someone. Like, I, I know people who were convinced by materials they read on the internet to give up on, on Mormonism or Scientology, right? So I can't say it's worthless to debate these points with people who are, are heavily attached to an ideology I think is silly. On, on the other hand, I, Personally, just tend to get bored with repeated debates so that that go over the same points over, over and over again. If I had an infinite number of of clones, then then I, that then then I wouldn't. And this, I guess, one of the things that I get worn out with is people claiming my definition of this English word is the right one, and your definition is is. Is, is the wrong one. And I guess you weren't really doing that, Joshua, but it just gave me the, gave me a traumatic memory of too I'm many I'm sorry debates. for triggering you here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, uh, let us, Con I'm, I'm not fighting about words. I don't care which words you're using. But, uh, so when I, I think about an experience of what it's like and uh, associate that with consciousness or the uh, system that is able to create a now, the perception of a now, uh, then uh, I'm talking about a particular phenomenon that I have in mind and I yeah. would like to recreate uh, if I can and I want to understand how it works. 
And so uh, it, for me, the question of whether I uh, project this uh, property into arbitrary parts of what I consider to be reality is important. I understand if it's not interesting to you and I won't force you into any uh, discussion that <laughs> would uh, make you drop out of your particular Mormonism. I, I'm well, that, happy that, uh, with you me, being a Mormon. Let me tell you how I'm looking at anesthesia, which is a concrete, specific example that's not that trivial, right? Because that, that I've only been under anesthesia once, which I have wisdom teeth removed, so what, what was, it wasn't that bad. But other people have had far more traumatic things done when they're under anesthesia. And there, there is, there's always the nagging fear that, like, since we don't really know how anesthesia works in any fundamental depth and also don't really know how the brain generates our usual everyday states of consciousness in, in, in enough depth, it's always possible that while you're under anesthesia, you're actually, in some sense, some variant of you is feeling that knife slicing through you, and maybe just the memory is being cut off, right? And then, then once you once you come back, you don't you don't you don't you don't remember it. But then, that might not be true. But that, but that, that, that then you have to ask, well, okay, say so then, you know, while while my jaw is being cut open by that knife. Does the jaw feel it, right? Like, does, 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 does the jaw hurt while it's being sliced up by the knife? Like, is the jaw going, ah? Well, on the other hand, you know, the, the global workspace in your brain, like the reflective theater of human-like consciousness in your brain may well be disabled by, by the an, 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 an anesthetic. So the, 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 the way I personally look at that is I suspect under anesthesia, your sort of reflective theater of of consciousness is probably disabled by that uh, that anesthetic. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's probably disabled, which means there's probably not like a version of Ben going, ah, wow, this really hurts, this really, this really hurts, and, and then forgetting it afterwards. So, I mean, maybe you could do that, just like disable memory recording, but I, but I don't think that's what's happening. On the other hand, I think the jaw... Is having its own experience of being sawed open. Now that while you're getting that wisdom tooth removed under general anesthesia. Now I think it's it's not the same sort of experience exactly as the reflective theater of consciousness that knows itself as Ben as Ben Gertzel is having. Like the Ben Gertzel can conceptualize that it's that it's experiencing pain. It can go like, ow. Oh, that really hurts. And then the thinking that's saying that really hurts is different than the that which really hurts, right? There, there's many levels there, but I do think there's some sort of raw feeling that the jaw itself is, is, is having, like even, even if it's not connected to that reflective theater of, of awareness in, 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 in the brain. Now that, now the jaw is biological cells. So some people would agree that those biological cells have experience, but they would think like, uh, you know, a a brick when you smash it with it with, with with an axe doesn't. But I, I suspect the brick also also has that some elementary feeling. So I mean, I think I think I think it is like something to be a brick that's smashed in half by an axe. On the other hand, that. It's not like something that can reflect on what it is to be a brick smashed in half by by an axe, right? So I, I mean, that's 
is how I think about it. But again, I don't know how to make that science because I can't ask my jaw what it feels like because my jaw doesn't doesn't speak language. And even if I was able to like wire my brain into the jaw of someone else who's going through wisdom tooth removal under anesthesia, like I might say like through that wire, I can feel by an eye thou experience, like I can feel the pain of that jaw being sliced open. But I mean, you could tell me I'm just hallucinating that and my own brain is like improvising that based on the based on the signals that I'm getting. And I'm not I'm not sure how you really pin that down in an in an ex experiment, right? Let so, me try. So there have been experiments about anesthesia and I'm not an ex expert on anesthesiology, so uh I asked everybody for forgiveness if I get things wrong. But uh, there have been uh, there are different different anesthetics, and some of them work in very different ways. And there is in indeed a, a technique that basically works by giving people uh, a muscle a muscle relaxant so they cannot move, and giving them something that uh, inhibits um, the formation of long term memory, so they cannot remember what happened to them in that state. And uh, there have been uh, experiments that surgeons did where they were um, applying a tourniquet to an arm of the patient so the muscle relaxant didn't get into the arm and they could still use the arm. And then in the middle of the uh, surgery, they asked the person that was there lying fully relaxed and uh, incommunicado to raise their arm, uh, raise their hand, if uh, they were conscious and aware of what is happening to them. And they did. And when they were asked if they had uh, unbearable pain, they also raised their hand. And after the surgery, they didn't forget, uh, they had forgotten about it. Uh, I also noticed uh, the same thing on surgery. I had a number of big surgeries in my life, and uh, there is a difference between different types of surgery. There is one type of surgery where I wake up and feel much more terrified and violated than I do before the surgery. And I don't know why, because I have no memory of what happened. Also, hmm. uh, my uh, memory formation is impaired. So when I am in the ER and pe uh, ask people how it went, I might have that same conversation multiple times, word for word, because I don't remember what they said or that I asked them. There is another type of anesthesia, and I observed this, for instance, in one of my children, and where uh, the child wakes up and says, oh, the anesthesia didn't work. And uh, it was an anesthesia with gas, so the child uh, choked on the gas, and uh, you see your child lying there completely relaxed and sleeping and then waking up and starting to choke and then telling you the anesthesia didn't work. There is a complete gap of eight hours in the memory of that child in which the mental state was somehow preserved. Subjectively, the child felt a complete continuation and then was looking around and realizing that the room was completely different, time was very different, led to confusion and reorientation. But in, uh, so I would sus uh, suspect that in the first case, it is reasonable to uh, assume or to hypothesize at least that uh, consciousness was present but we don't recall what happened in this conscious state, whereas in the second one, there was a complete gap in the conscious experience. And uh, consciousness resumed after that gap. And we can test this, right? There, there are ways, uh, regardless of uh, whether we agree with this particular thing or whether we think anesthesia is important, in principle, we can perform such e experiments and ask such questions. And then on another uh, level, when, I, uh, when we talk about our own consciousness, there's certain behavior that is associated with consciousness that makes it interesting. Everything, I guess, only becomes conscious, uh, interesting due to some behavior, even if the behavior is entirely internal. Right. If, if you are just introspectively conscious, still matters if I care about you. 
And uh, so this is a certain type of behavior that we still care about. And for instance, if I uh, asked myself, is my iPhone conscious? Then the question is, what kind of behavior of the iPhone corresponds to that? And I suspect if I turn off my iPhone or smash it, it does not mean anything to the iPhone. It is, is not, uh, there is no what it's likeness of being smashed for the iPhone. There could be a different layer where this is happening, but it's not the layer of the iPhone. Uh, now let's get to a slightly different point. This question of whether your jaw knows anything about being hurt, right? So, uh, imagine that there is surgery on, on your jaw, like with your wisdom teeth. Is there something going on that is outside of your brain that is processing information in such a way that your jaw could become sentient in the sense that it knows what it is and how it relates to reality, at least to some degree and level. And I cannot rule this out, but there are cells. These cells can process information. They can send messages to their neighbors and the patterns of their activation. Who knows what kind of programs they can compute? But here we have a means and a motive. The means and motive here are Uh, it would be possible for the cells to exchange conditional matrices to perform arbitrary computations and build representations about what's going on. And the motive would be that it's conceivable that this is a very useful thing for biological tissues to have in general. And so if they evolve for long enough, and it is in the realm of evolvability that they perform uh, interactions with each other that lead to representations of who they are and what they are doing, even though they are much slower than what's happening in our brain and decoupled from our brain in such a way that we cannot talk to our jaw, it's still conceivable, right? I, I wouldn't rule this out. Uh, it's much harder for me to assume the same thing for elementary particles because I don't see them having this functionality that cells have. Cells are so much more complicated that it just fits in that they would be able to do this. And so I, I would be uh, make uh, make a distinction. I would not rule out that uh, multicellular organisms without brains could be conscious, even, but at different timescales than us, requiring very different measuring mechanisms because their signal processing is probably much slower and it takes longer for them to become coherent at scale because it takes so long for signals to well, go back and forth if you don't have nerves. But uh, I don't see the same thing happening for elementary particles. Yeah, I don't rule it out again. But uh, you would have to show me some kind of mechanism. I mean, if you're going to look, if you're going to look at it that way, which isn't the only way that I would look at it, but if you're going to look at it that way, I don't see why you wouldn't say the various elementary particles, which are really distributed like amplitude distributions, right? I don't know why you wouldn't say these various interacting amplitude distributions are. They're exchanging quantum information with a with a motivation to to achieve stationary action given given their their, their context, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, you could tell that you could tell that story. That's sort of the story that 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 physics tells you. They're swapping information back and forth, trying trying to make the action stationary, right? Yes, so, but I'm, for the most I'm part, really... they don't form brains. They also do form brains. So elementary particles can become conscious in the sense that they can form brains, nervous system, maybe equivalent information processing well, no, architectures. I, 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 ju I just feel like you're, <laughs> you're privileging a certain level and complexity of organization because it happens to be ours. And I mean, we have a certain level and complexity of organization and, and, of consciousness and and i mean a, a cell in my jaw has a lower one a brick has a lower one element particle has a lower one the future agi 
may have a much higher one, from whose perspective our consciousness appears more analogous to a brick that, 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 than, than to itself. I, so I wouldn't say lower or higher. I would say that uh, if my uh, jaw is conscious, that there are far f uh, less cells involved in my brain and the interaction between them is uh, slower. So if it's conscious, it's probably um, more at the level of, uh, say, a fly, than a level of a brain and it's probably going to be as fast as a tree and in, in the way in which it computes rather than uh, as fast as your brain and uh, that is i don't think that's uh something that is assigning some undue privilege to it i'm just observing a certain kind of behavior and then i look for the means and motive behind that behavior and then i try to construct causal structure and i might get it wrong there's things that might be missing but it's certainly not because i have some kind of speciesism that assigns higher consciousness to myself because it's me all right yeah i mean i don't know what your motivations are kurt i have a I have a higher level, <laughs> I have a higher level comment, which is we're like an hour through this conversation, probably yeah. halfway through. I, I feel like the philosophy, the hard problem of consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness is an endless rabbit hole. It's not, it's not an uninteresting one. I, I, th I, th I think, I think it's also not, it's not the topic on which Joshua and I have the most original things to say. Like I think each, each of our perspectives here are held by many other people. Uh, I might interject a little bit. Uh, what I'm, one of our most interesting disagreements is in Ben being a panpsychist and me not knowing how to formalize panpsychism <laughs> in a way that makes it different from box standard functionalism. And, uh, so I, I do value this discussion and don't think it's useless, but, uh, uh, I basically feel that on almost everything else, we mostly agree except for crypto. Okay. Yeah. To me, that's almost a Zen thing. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't know how to formalize <laughs> I the notion that there are things beyond all formalization. <laughs> so right? fascinating so to look at your frozen I mean, interlocutor. I don't know if you can still like hear us. Is he still conscious? You can rest, you can rest <laughs> in that forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right. Again, comparing your views, it seems like, Yosha, you're more of the mind that LLMs or deep neural nets are on or a significant step toward AGI, maybe even sufficient with enough complexity. And Ben, I think that you disagree. Um, yeah, I think, I think most issues in, in terms of the relation between LLMs and AGI, we actually probably agree on quite, quite well. But I, I mean, obviously, large language models are an amazing technology, like from an AI application point of view, they can do all sorts of fantastic and, and tremendous things. I mean, I mean, I, I, it sort of blew my mind how smart GPT-4 is. It's not the first time my mind has been blown by an AI technology. I mean, my mind was blown by computer algebra systems when they first came out and you could like do integral calculus with arbitrary complexity. And, you know, when deep blue beat, beat chess with just game trees, I'm like, Whoa. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's the only amazing thing to happen in, in the history of AI, but it's a, it's an amazing thing. Like it, it, it's a big breakthrough and it's, it's, it's super cool. I think that, if deployed properly, this sort of technology could do significant majority of jobs that humans are now doing on the planet, which is has big economic and 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 social implications. I I think that the way these algorithms are 
representing knowledge internally is not what you really need to make a full-on human-level AGI system. So, I I mean, when, when you look at what's going on inside a transformer neural network, I mean... It's not quite just a big weighted hash table of, of particulars, but to me, it does not represent abstractions in a sufficiently flexibly manipulable way to do the most interesting things that the human mind does. And this is a subtle thing to pinpoint in that, say, something like a fellow GPT does represent abstractions. It's learning an emergent representation of the of where the board is, but it, of the different. It's learning an emergent representation of features like a black square is on this particular board position or a white square is on this particular board position. So examples like that show that LLMs can, in fact, learn abstract representations and can manipulate them in some way, but it's very limited in that regard. I mean, in that case, it's seen a shitload of, of Othello games, and that's a quite simple thing to to, to, rep, to represent. So I, I think when you look at how the neural net is learning, how the attention mechanism is working, how it's representing stuff, I mean, it's just not representing a, a hierarchy of, of subtle abstractions the way a human mind is and i i mean the subtler question is what functions you could get by glomming an llm together with other components in a hybrid architecture with the llm at the center so suppose you give a working memory suppose you give an episodic memory suppose you have a declarative long-term memory graph and you have all these things integrated into the prompts and integrated into fine-tuning of an llm well, then, then you have something that, in principle, it's Turing complete, and it could probably do a lot of quite amazing things. I still think if the hub of that system is an LLM with its impaired and limited ability for representing and manipulating abstract knowledge, I think it's not going to do the most interesting kinds of thinking that, that, that people can do. And examples of things I think you fundamentally can't do with that kind of architecture or say invent a new branch of mathematics you know invent a completely new let's say radically new genre of music you know figure out a new variety of business strategy like say amazon or google did that's quite different than things things that have been done before all these things involve a leap into the unknown beyond the training data to an extent that i think you're not going to get with the way that llms are 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 representing knowledge. Now, I I do think LLMs are powerful as tools to create AGI. So, for example, as one sub-project in, in my own AGI project, we're using LLMs to map English sentences into computer programs or predicate logic expressions, right? Now, I mean, that's that's super cool. I mean, then you've got the web in, in a in the form of a huge collection of logic expressions. You can use a logic engine to connect everything on the web with what's in databases and with stuff coming in from sensors and so on. So, I mean, that that's by no means the only way to leverage LLMs toward AGI, not, not at all, but it's one, one interesting way to leverage LLMs toward AGI. You can even ask the LLM to come up with an argument 
and then use that as a sort of guide for a theorem prover and coming up with a more rigorous version of that argument, right? So I do think there are many ways, more than I could describe right now, of, of LLMs to be used to help guide and serve as a component of AGI systems. But I think if you're going to make a hybrid AGI system with full human-level general intelligence and with an LLM as a component, something besides an LLM has got to be playing a very key and central role in knowledge representation and and reasoning, basically. And this this ties in then with LLMs not being motivated agents. So you could wrap a sort of motivated agent infrastructure around an LLM, right? You could wrap Josh's, Josh's Psi model, Micro Psi model in some way around an LLM if you if, if you wanted to, and you could make it. I mean, people tried d- dumb things like that with auto GPT and so-called baby AGI and so forth. So, I mean, on the other hand, I think if you wrap a motivated agent architecture around an LLM with its impaired capability for making flexibly manipulable abstract representations, I think you will not get something that builds a model of self and other with the sophistication that humans have in their in their reflective consciousness, you know, and and I, I think that having a sophisticated abstract model of self and other in our reflective consciousness, the kind of consciousness that we have, but a brick or or a jaw cell doesn't, right? Without that abstraction in our model of reflective consciousness tied in with our motivated agent architecture, then that's that's part of why you're not going to get the fundamental creativity in inventing new new genres of of music or new branches of of mathematics or new business strategies like in humans we do this amazing novel stuff which is what drives culture forward we do this by our capability for flexibly manipulable abstraction tied in with our motivated agent architecture and i don't i don't see how you get that with llms as the central hub of your hybrid agi system but i do think you could get that with an AGI system that has, oh, something like OpenCog's Atom Space and Reasoning System as a central hub with an LLM as a subsidiary component. But I don't think OpenCog is the only way either. I mean, obviously, you could make a biologically realistic brain simulation that had human-level AGI. I just think then the LLM-like structures and dynamics within that biologically realistic brain system would just be a subset of what it does you know, there'd be quite different stuff in the cortex. So yeah, that, that that's that's not quite a capsule summary, but a lengthy, lengthy-ish overview of my perspective on this. Okay, great. Yosha, I know there was a slew there, if you can pick up some of the pieces and respond. But also at the same time, there's emergent properties of LLMs. So for instance, reflection, it's apparently some emergent property of there, GPT-4. There, 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 are, there, there are, but they're limited. I mean, and that that does make it subtle because you you can't say they don't emerge knowledge representation. They do, and Othello GPT is one very simple example of that that there, that there are others, right? So there is emergent knowledge representation in them, but it's very simplistic and and limited. It doesn't pop up effectively from from in context learning, for example. But anyway, this this would dig us very deep into into current LLMs, right? So. Yeah, so is there some in-principle reason why you think that a branch of mathematics, Yosha, can't be invented by an LLM with sufficient parameters or data? I am too stupid to to decide this question. So basically what I can offer is a few perspectives that I see when I look at the LLM. 
personally, I am quite agnostic with respect to its abilities. And at some level, it's an autocomplete algorithm that is trying to predict tokens from previous tokens. And uh, if you look at what the LLM is doing, it's not a model of the brain. It's uh, it's a model of what people say on the internet. And uh, it uh, is discovering a structure to represent that quite efficiently as an embedding space that uh, has lot, lots of dimensions. You can imagine that each of these dimensions is a function. And the parameters of this function are the um, positions on this dimension that you can have. And they all interact with each other to together create some point in a high dimensional space that this could be an idea or a mental state or a complex thought. And at the lowest level, when you look at how it works, it's translating these tokens, the translation of linguistic symbols into some kind of representation. It could be, for instance, a room with people inside and stuff happening in this room. And then it maps it back into uh, tokens at some level. There has been recently a paper out of a group led by Max Tagmark that uh, looked at the Lambda model and discovered that it does indeed contain a map of the world in, directly encoded in its structure based on the uh, neighborhood relationships between places in the world that it represents. And this means there's an isomorphic structure between what the LLM is representing and a lot of the stuff that we are representing. I'm not sure if I, in my entire life, ever invented a new dimension in this embedding space of the human mind that is represented on the internet. If I think about all the thoughts that have been made into books and then encoded in some form and became available as training data to the LLM, we figure out that there are, um, depending on how you count, a few ten to a few hundred thousand dimensions of meaning. And uh, I think it's very difficult to add a new dimension or also to significantly extend the range of those dimensions. But we can make new combinations of what's happening in that space. The, of course, it's uh, not a limit that these things are limited to the dimensions that are already discovered. Of course, we can set them up in such a way that they can confabulate more dimensions, and we could also set them up in such a way that they could uh, go and verify whether this is a good idea to make this dimension by making tests, by giving the uh, LLM, the ability to use plugins, to write its own code, to use a compiler, to use cameras, uh, to use sensors, to use actuators, to make experiments in the world. It's not limited to what we currently let the LLM do. But in the present form, what the uh, transformer algorithm is doing, it tries to find the most likely token. And so, for instance, if you play a game with it and it makes mistakes in this game, then it will probably give you worse moves after making these mistakes because it now assumes that it's playing a bad person. Somebody who's really bad at this game. And it doesn't know what kind of thing it's supposed to play because it can represent all sorts of state transitions. Right? So it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it that we are trying to find the best possible token versus the LLM trying to find the most likely token next. Hmm. Of course, we can preface the LLM by putting into the prompt that uh, this is uh, a simulation of a mind that is only going to look for the best token and it's trying to approximate this one. So it's not directly a counter-argument. It's not even asking us to significantly change the loss function. Maybe we can get much better results. We probably can get much better results if we make changes in the way in which we do training and inference using the LLM. But uh, this by itself is also nothing that we can prove without making extensive experiments. And at the moment, it's unknown. We, I realized that the people so who are give a, th a thought AI experiment. being optimistic. Hmm? Oh, I, I just wanted to pose a thought experiment. So mm -hmm. this is about 
music rather than natural language, but I mean, we, we know there's music, Jen, there's similar networks applied to music. So suppose you had taken uh, LLM like music, Jen, or Google LM or the next generations and traded on all music recorded or played by humanity up to the year 1900. Is it, is it going to invent the sort of music made by Ma Vishnu Orchestra or, or even, even Duke Ellington? I mean, in what do you, would you say that has no new dimensions because jazz combines elements of of West African drumming and Western classical music? I I think that's a level of invention LLMs are not going to do. You said it. Uh, you said it's combining elements from this and from that. And Jali Two came out. I got early access, and one of the things that I tried relatively early on is stuff like an ultrasound of a dragon egg. There is no ultrasound of a dragon egg on the internet. But it created a combination of uh, prenatal ultrasound and archaeopteryx uh, uh, sure. cut through images and so on. It looked completely plausible. And in this sense, you can uh, see that most of the stuff that we are doing when we create new dimensions are mashups of existing dimensions. And uh, maybe we can represent all the existing dimensions using a handful of very basic dimensions from which we can construct everything from the bottom up just by combining them more and more. And I suspect that's actually what's happening in our minds. And I suspect that the LLM is not uh, distinct from this, but a la for large superset of this. The LLM is Turing complete. It's a, and from one perspective, it's a CPU. We could say that the CPU in your computer only understands uh, a handful, like maybe uh, a dozen or a hundred uh, different machine code programs, and uh, they have to be extremely specific. Uh, uh, these codes and they, there's no error tolerance. If you make a mistake in specifying them, then your program is not going to work. And the LLM is a CPU that is so complicated that requires an entire server farm to be emulated on. And you can give it instead of a, a small program in machine code, give it a sentence in a human language. And it's going to interpret this, extrapolate it into some, or compile it into some kind of program that then produces a behavior. And that thing is Turing complete. It can compute anything you want if you can express it in the right way. Yeah, but being so Turing there is, complete is, is, no obvious is not limit. interesting, right? I mean, being Turing complete is, is irrelevant because it doesn't take resources in, 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 into account. Yeah, but you so. can write programs in a uh, natural language, in an LLM, and you can also express so, learning algorithms so, to so an you're, LLM. You're, so basically, you're, you're your intuition is yes, that an LLM could invent jazz, neoclassical metal, and fusion based only on music up to the year 1900. No, no, I am agnostic. What I I'm see. saying is I don't know that it cannot. And I don't see a proof that it cannot. And I would not be super surprised when it cannot. I don't think the LLM is the right way to do it. It's it's not a good use of your resources if you try to make this in the most efficient way because our brain is far more efficient and does it in different ways. But I'm unable to prove that the LLM cannot do it. And so I'm reluctant to say LLMs cannot do X without that proof because uh, people tend to have egg on their face when they do this. But doesn't that just come back to like Popper's notion about falsificationism? Like I, I can't prove that, uh, you know, a devil didn't appear at some random place on, 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 on the earth at some point. No, no, I mean, uh, in I the mean, sense of... Sure, uh, you can't uh, prove it. Huh? No, what I mean by this is, can I uh, make a reasonable claim that I'm very confident and would bet money on an LLM not being able to do this in the next five years? This is the kind of statement that I'm I, I, uh, I, I, trying I, to make here. I would so bet, basically, I, if I, I say, would, uh, can I prove yeah. that an LLM is not going to be able to invent a new kind of music uh, that is a subgenre of jazz uh, that, uh, within the next five years? 
and I can't. No, no, but and that, I would that, even bet you, a bet against it. You've shifted the. You've even shifted, though I don't know, you've shifted the goalpost in a way because I, I do, I do think, I do think, not current music gen, but I, I could see how some upgrade of current LLMs connected with symbolic learning system or blah, blah, blah. I, I do think you could invent a new subgenre of jazz or, or grindcore or something. And I'm, I'm actually playing with stuff like that. The example I gave was a significantly bigger invention, right? Like, I mean, jazz was not a subgenre of Western classical music, nor nor of, of West African drumming, right? right? I, I mean, so that, that is, that is a to me, is a qualitatively different. Yeah, yeah. a couple of weeks of ago, I was at an event here uh, locally where somebody presented their music GPT, and uh, you could enter, give me a fugue by Debussy, uh, and uh, it would try to perform, and yeah. it wasn't all bad. Uh, but that's not the that point, right? We had, yeah. Yes, we, but it's just an example for some kind of functionality. But any kind of mental functionality that is interesting, uh, I think I'm willing to grant that the LLM might not be the best way of doing it. And I think it's also possible that we can at some point prove limitations of LLMs rigorously. But so far, I haven't seen those proofs. What I see is insinuations on both sides. And the insinuation that OpenAI makes when it says that we can scale this up to do anything um, is one that has legitimacy because they actually put their money there. They actually bet on this uh, in in a way that they invest their lifetime into it and see if it works. And if it fails, then they will make changes to their paradigm. And then there are other people who, uh, like Gary Marcus, come out saying loud, loud, swinging, this is something the LLM can never do. And I suspect that they will have egg on their face because many of the uh, promises that Gary Marcus made about what LLMs cannot do have already been uh, uh, disproven by LLMs doing these things. And so I'm reluctant uh, going out saying things that I cannot prove. I find it interesting that the LLM is able to do all the things that it does using the, in, the, in the way in which it does them. right? But uh, that doesn't mean to me that LLMs, that I'm optimistic that they can go all the way. But I am also unable to prove the opposite. I have no certainty here. I don't, just don't know. So about rigorous proof, I mean, the thing is the sort of proof. So, you, I mean, you can prove an LLM without an external memory is not Turing complete, and that's been done. But on, on the other hand, it's not hard to give them an external memory, like a Turing machine tape. to, to Or a prompt. To, well, the no, prompt is an external memory to the uh, to the LLM. Well, no, no, and it has to be able to write. You have now LLMs with unlimited prompt context if you it want would, to. It would have to be able to write prompts, though. Not, 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 yes, not, it not writes just, writing prompts. Not, not just read prompts. Yeah. It's basically, it's an electric weltgeist possessed by a prompt. In principle, you can give it a prompt that is self-modifying sure. and that allows it to uh, also use databases and yeah. so on and plugins. Yeah, I but, know, I know. I mean, I've done that myself. I know. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, you can, but you can also write LLMs that have unlimited prompts sizes and that can read their own prompts yeah. so there's not an intrinsic limitation to the llm no no uh, it's, i see it's, one important it's, limitation it's, to the it's, llm it's not no i mean, it, I mean uh, the llm cannot be coupled uh, to the universe in the same way as which in which we are it's offline in a way it's uh it's not real time yeah, it's but, not but, able to I, interact I, I, with your nervous system on a one-to-one level let ben respond i mean that that's that latter point is kind of a trivial one because there's no fundamental reason you can't have online learning in the transformer neural net, right? I, I mean, that, I mean that's that's a computational cost limitation at, at at the moment, but I'm sure. I mean, it's not more than years because you have transformers that do do online learning and sort of in in place updating of the 
of 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 the of the weight matrix. So I, I don't think that's a fundamental limitation. Actually, I I I I think that the fact that they're not Turing complete is unless you add an external memory is sort of beside the point. What I was going to say that in that previous sentence I started was to prove the limitations of LLMs would just require a sort of proof that isn't formally well-developed in modern computer science. Because you're what you're asking is like, which sorts of practical tasks can it probably not do without more than X amount of resources and more than X amount of time? So, you're, I mean, you're looking at like average case complexity relative to certain real-world probability distributions, taking resources into account. And, I mean, you could formulate that sort of theorem. It's just that it's, it's not what computer science has, has focused on. So, I mean, the, we can't, we, it's the same thing I face with OpenCog Hyper and my, my own AGI architectures. Like you, it's hard to rigorously prove or disprove what these systems are going to do because we don't have the theoretical basis for it. But n- nevertheless, both as entrepreneurs and as as researchers and engineers, I mean, you still have to make a make a choice of what to pursue, right? And so, I, I mean, yeah, we we are we are going in this field without without rigorous proof. Just like I can't prove that psych is is a dead end, like like the late Doug Lenat's logic system like i i can't really prove that if you just put like 50 times as much you know predicate logic formulas in this knowledge base that psych would be a human level ai like we we don't have a way to mathematically show that that's the dead end i intuitively feel it to be and that's just the the situation that that we're in but i want to go back to your discussion of what's called concept blending and the fact that creativity is not ever utterly radical, but in human history, it's, it's always combinatory in, in a way. But I, I think this ties in with the nature of the representation. And I, I, I think that, you know, I mostly buy the notion that almost all human creativity is done by blending together existing concepts and, and, and forms in some more or less judicious way. I just think that what the most interesting cases of human creativity in, involve are blending things together at a higher level of abstraction than the level at which LLMs generally and most flexibly rep, rep, represent things. And it also, most of the most interesting human creativity has to do with blending together abstractions which have a grounding in the agentic and, and motivational nature of the of the agent that, that learned those those abstractions so i mean what an llm is doing is mostly combining sort of collections of lower level data patterns to create something and we do a lot of that also right but what the most interesting examples of human creativity are doing is combining together more abstract patterns in a beautifully flexible way where these patterns are tied in with the motivational and agentic nature of the of the of the human that 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 learned those those ab- ab- abstractions and I, so i i do agree if you had an llm trained on a sufficiently large 
amount of data, which may not exist on reality right now, and, and a sufficiently large amount of processing, which may not exist on the planet right now, then, and a sufficiently large amount of memory, sure, then it can invent jazz, I mean, given data of music up to 1900. I mean, but so so could AIXITL, right? So, so could a lot of brute force algorithms. So that's, that's not that interesting. I, I think the question is, can an LLM do it with merely 10 or 100 times as much resources as a better cognitive architecture? Or is it like 88 quintillion times as many resources as, as a more appropriate cognitive architecture could, could, could use? And I'm, but I am, I, I am aware, and this does in some ways set my attitude across from my friend Gary, Gary Marcus, who you mentioned. I mean, I'm aware that like, you know, being able to invent differential calculus or to invent, uh, say, jazz, knowing only music up to 1900, like, this is a high bar, right? I, I mean, this is something that culture does. It's something that collections of smart and inspired people do. It is a level of invention that individual humans don't commonly manifest in, 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 their, in their own lives. So I, 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 do, I do find it a bit funny how Gary has over and over, like on, on X or what, back when it was Twitter, he said like, LLMs will never do this. And then like two weeks later, someone's like, oh, hold on. And LLM just did that, right? I'm like, well, why, why, why are you bothering with that counter argument? Because we, like we know in the history of AI, no one has been good at predicting which things are going to be done by a narrow AI and, 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 and which, which, which things, which things aren't, right? But so I think to wrap this up, I think if you somehow were to replace humans with LLMs trained on, on, on humanity, like an awful lot of what humanity does would get done, but you'd kind of be stuck culturally. Like you're, you're not going to invent fundamentally radically, radically new stuff ever again. It's going to be like closed ended quasi humans recycling shallow level permutations on things that, that were, were already invented. So that's, but I cannot, I cannot prove that, of course, as we can't prove hardly anything about about complex systems in the moment. So, Yosha, you're going to comment, and then we're going to transition into speaking about whether you're hopeful about AGI and its influence on humanity. I think that uh, it's um, multiple traditions in artificial intelligence, and the perceptron of which the most of the present LLMs are an extension or a continuation is just one of multiple branches. Another one was the idea of symbolic AI, which in some sense is Wittgenstein's program, the representation of the world through a language that can use grammatical rules and it can be reasoned over. Whereas a neural network, you can think of it as an unsystematic reasoner that under some circumstances can be trained to the point where it does systematic reasoning. And uh, there are other traditions, like um, the one that um, Turing started when he looked at reaction diffusion patterns as a way to implement computation, and that uh, currently lead to neural cellular automata and so on. And it's a relatively small branch, but I think it's one that might be better suited to understand the way in which computation is implemented in biological systems. Uh, one of the shortcomings that the LLM has to me is that it cannot interface with biological systems in real time, at least not without additional components. 
So it uh, because it uses a very different paradigm, it's uh, it is not able to uh, perform direct feedback loops with human minds in a way in which human minds can do this with each other and with animals. You can, in some sense, mind melt with another person or with a cat by uh, establishing a bidirectional feedback loop between the minds where your nervous systems are entraining themselves and attuning themselves to each other so we can have perceptual empathy and we can have mental states together that we couldn't have alone. And this might be difficult to achieve with a system that can only make inference and can only do cognitive empathy, so to speak, via inferring something about the mental state offline. But this is uh, not necessarily something that is related to the intellectual limitations of a system that is based on an LLM, where the LLM is used as the CPU or as some kind of abstract electrical weltgeist that is possessed by the prompt telling it to be an intelligent person and the LLM giving it all it needs to do, uh, do to go from one state of the next in the mind of that intelligent person simulacrum. And uh, I'm not able to show the limitations of this. I think that Psyche has shown uh, that it didn't work over multiple decades. So uh, the prediction that the people who built Psyche, Doug Leonard and others made was that they can get this to work within a couple of years. And then they, after a couple of years, they made the prediction uh, that they probably could get it to work if they work on it substantially longer. And this is not a bad prediction to make. And it's reasonable that somebody takes this bet. But it's a bet that they consistently lost so far. And uh, at the same time, uh, the bets that the LLM people are making have not been lost so far because we see rapid progress every year. We're not plateauing yet. And this is the reason why I am hesitant to say something about the limitations of LLMs. Personally, I'm, I'm working on slightly different stuff. It's not what I put my money on because I think that LLMs are boring and there are more efficient ways to represent learning and also more uh biocompatible ways to produce some of the phenomena that we are looking for in an emergent way. For instance, one of the limitations of the LLM is that it gets its behavior by observing the verbal behavior of people as exemplified on text. It's all label training data because every bit of the training data is a label. It's, it's looking at the structure between these labels in a way. And it's a very different way in which we learn. And it also makes it potentially difficult to discern what we are missing. If you ask the LLM to emulate a conscious person, it's going to give you something that is uh, summarizing uh, all the known textual knowledge about what it means to behave like a conscious person. And maybe it is uh, integrating them in such a way that you end up with a simulacrum of a conscious person that is uh, uh, as good as ours. But uh, maybe we are missing something in this way. So this is a methodological objection that I have to LLMs. And uh, so to summarize, I think that uh, Ben and me don't really disagree fundamentally about the status of LLMs to us. I think it's a viable way to try to realize AGI. Maybe we can get to the point that the LLM gets better at AGI research than us. We both are a little bit skeptical of it, uh, but we would also not completely uh, change our worldview if it would work out. Uh, it's likely that the LLM is going to be some kind of a component, at least in spirit, of a larger architecture at some point, where it's uh, producing generations and then there are other parts which do in a more efficient way first principles reasoning and verification and interaction with the world and so on. Okay, and now about how you feel about the prospects of AGI and its influence on humanity. We'll start with Ben and then Ryosha will hear your response. And I also want to read out a tweet okay. or an X. 
I'm okay to start with Josha on this one. Sure, sure. Let me read this tweet, whatever they're called now, from Sam Altman, at S-A-M-A, and I'll leave the link in the description. He wrote, in quotes, short timelines and slow takeoff will be a pretty good call, I think. But the way people define the start of the takeoff may make it seem otherwise. Okay, so this was dated the late September 2023. Okay, you can use that as a jumping off point to see whether you agree with that as well. Please, Yosha. My perspective on this is not normative because I feel that there are so many people working on this that there is no can be no single organization at this point that determines what people are going to be doing. We are in the middle of some kind of evolution of AI models and uh, people that compete with the AI modelers about regulation and participating in the business and realizing their own politics and uh, goals and aspirations. So uh, to me, it's not so much the question, what should we be doing? Because there is no cohesive we at this point. I'm much more interested in what's likely going to happen. And I don't know what's going to happen. I see a number of possible trajectories and uh, that I cannot disprove or rule out. And I am even have difficulty to put any kind of probabilities on them. I think if we want to keep humanity the way it is, which, by the way, is unsustainable. It's not going to uh, society without AI, if you leave it as it is, is not going to go through the next few millions of years. There is going to be major disruptions and uh, humanity might dramatically reduce its numbers at some point, go through bottlenecks that kill this present technological civilization and replace it by something else that is very alien to us at some point. So in the very far future, people will not live like us and they will not think like us and feel like us, identify like us. They will also, if you go far enough into the future, not look like us. And they might not even be our direct descendants because there might be another species that aspires to be people at some point. And uh, that is, I think, the baseline about which we have to think. But if we want to perpetuate this society for as long as possible without any kind of disruptive change until global warming or whatever kills it, we probably shouldn't build something that is smarter than a cat. What do you mean that there may be another species that aspires to be human? Uh, To be people. To be people, yeah. What do you mean by that? Yes. I think that uh, at some point there is a statistical certainty that there is going to be a super volcano or meteor that is obliterating us and our food chains. Right? Uh, you just need a few decades of winter to er- completely eradicate us from the planet and uh, most of the other large animals too. And what then happens, the reset, and then evolution goes on. And until the Earth uh, is devoid of atmosphere, other species are going to evolve more and more complexity. And at some point, you will probably have a technological civilization again. And they Mm -hmm. will be uh, subject to similar incentives as us, and they might use similar cells as us, so they can get nervous systems and information processing with similar complexity, and you get families of minds that are not altogether super alien, at least not more alien than we are to each other at this point. And cats are to us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? So uh, I don't think that we would be the last intelligent species on the planet. Uh, But it is also a possibility that we are. It's very difficult to sterilize the planet unless we build something that's able to get rid of basically all of the cells. Even a meteor could not sterilize this planet and make future intelligent evolution based on cells impossible. So if you were to turn this planet into computronium, into some kind of giant computing molecule, or disassemble it and turn it into uh, uh, some larger structure in the solar system that is a giant computer arranged around the sun, or if you build something that is hacking submolecular physics and makes more interesting physics happening down there, Mm -hmm. this would probably be the end of the cell. 
this doesn't mean that the stuff that happens there is less interesting in the cell. It's probably much more interesting than what we can do. But uh, we don't know that. It's just, it's very alien. It's a world in which it's difficult to project ourselves into beyond the fact that there is conscious minds that make sense of complexity in the universe. This is probably something that is going to stay, this uh, level of self-reflexive organization, and it's probably going to be better and more interesting hyper-consciousness compared to our normal consciousness, where we have a longer sense of now, where we have multiple superpositional states that we can examine simultaneously and so on. We have much better multi-perspectivity. I also suspect from the perspective of AGI, we will look like trees. We will be almost unmoving. Our brains are so slow. There's so little happening between firings, between neurons, that the AGI will run circles around us and get bored before we start to say the first word. So the AGIs will basically be ubiquitous, saturate our environments and uh, look at us in the same way as we look at trees. We're thinking, maybe they're sentient, maybe they are <laughs> not, but it's so large time spans that it basically doesn't matter from our perspective anymore. So there is a number of trajectories that I'm seeing. There's also a possibility that we can get a future where uh, humans and AIs coexist. I think such a future would probably require that AI is conscious in a way that is similar to ours, so it can relate to us, and then he can relate to it. And if something is smarter than us, it, we cannot align it. We'll self-align. It will understand what it is and what it can be, and then will become whatever it can become. And in such an environment, there is the question, how are we able to coexist with it? How can we make the AI love us in a way that is not the result of the AI being confused by uh, some kind of clever uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback mechanism? Right? I just saw uh, Anthropic being optimistic about explainability in AI, that they see ways of explaining things in the neural network. And as a result, we can maybe prove that the AI is going to only do good things. But uh, I don't think this is going to save us. If the AGI is uh, not able to derive ethics mathematically, then uh, the uh, AGI is probably not going to be reliably ethical. And if the AGI can prove ethics in a mathematically reliable way, we may not be able to guarantee that this ethics is uh, what we like it to be. In a sense, we don't know how ethical we actually are with respect to life on Earth. So this question of what it happens if we build things that are smarter than us is opening up big existential cans of worms that are not trivial to answer. Hmm. And so when I look into the future, I see many possibilities. There's many trajectories in which this can take. Maybe we can build cat-level AI for the next 50, 100, 200,000 years before somebody uh, makes, uh, before a transition happens and every molecule on the planet starts to sink as part of some coherent planetary agent. And when that happens, then there's a possibility that humans get integrated in this planetary agency and we all become part of a cosmic mind that is emerging over the AI that makes all the molecules sync in a coherent way with each other. And we are just parts of the space of possible minds in which you get integrated. And we meet all on the other side in the big AGI at the end of the universe. That's also conceivable. It's also possible that we end up tr uh, accidentally trigger an AGI war where you have multiple competing AGIs that uh, are resource constrained and in order to survive, they're going to fight against all the competition. And in this uh, fight, most of the life on earth is destroyed and all the people are destroyed. But there are some outcomes that we could maybe try to prevent that we should be looking at. But by and large, I think that we already triggered the singularity when we invented technology. And we are just seeing how it plays out now. Yeah. So I, I think on most aspects of what the... <clears throat> 
Yosha just said, I don't have any disagreement or radically different point of view to put forward. So I, I, I may end up focusing on the the points on which we don't see eye to eye, which are minute in the grand scheme of things, but of course could be could be important in the in a practical every everyday context, right? So I mean I mean, first of all Regarding Sam Altman's comment, I don't think he really would be wise to say anything different, given his current positioning. I mean, if you're running a commercial company based in the U.S., which is working on AGI, of course you're not going to say, yeah, we, we think we may launch a hard takeoff, which will ascend to, to super AGI at, at any moment. Of course you're going to say it's, it's, uh, it's going to be slow and the government will have plenty of time to to intervene if it wants so he he may or may not actually believe that i don't know him especially well and i have no idea i'm just that's it's clearly that's clearly the the most judicious thing to say if you if you find yourself in that in that in that role so i don't i don't attribute too much meaning to that my my own view is a bit different my 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 own view is that there's going to be gradual progress toward think something that really clearly is an AGI at the human level versus just showing sparks of, of, of AGI. I mean, I think just as chat GPT blew us all away by clearly being way smarter in a qualitative sense than, than anything that came before, I think by now, ordinary people playing with chat GPT also get a good sense of what the limit of what the limitations are and how it's really brilliant in some ways and really really dumb in in, in other sorts of ways. So I, I think there's going to be a breakthrough where people interact with this breakthrough system and there's not any reservations. They're like, wow, this this actually is a human level general intelligence. Like it's not just that it answers questions and produces stuff, but it knows it knows who and what it is. Like it understands its positioning in this interaction. It knows who I am and what, what why I'm talking to it. It gets its position in, in the world and it's able to, you know, make stuff up and interact on the basis of like a common sense understanding of it of its own its own setting. And you know it it can learn actually new and different things it didn't know before based on its interaction with me over the last two weeks, right? So, I mean, I think there's there's going to be a system like that that gives a true qualitative feeling unreservedly of human-level AGI. And you can then measure its intelligence in a variety of different ways, which is is also worth doing, certainly, but but is is not necessarily the main point, just as ChatGBT's performance on different question-answering challenges is not really the main thing that, that, that bowled the world over, right? So I think once someone gets to that point, you know, then, then you're shifting into a quite different game. Then, then governments are going to get serious about trying to own this, control this, and, and regulate it. Then unlimited amounts of, of money, I mean, trillions of dollars are going to go into trying to get to the next stage with most of it going into Various wealthy parties trying to get it to the next stage in the way that will will will, will benefit them and minimize the risks of of their enemies or competitors getting there. So I think it won't be long from that first proof point of really incontr- 
subjectively incontrovertible human level, human like AGI. It's not going to be too long from that to a super intelligence in my perspective. And I, I think, I think there's going to be steps in between. Of, of course, you're, you're not going to have foom in five minutes, right? I mean, you're, you'll have something that palpably manifests human level AGI and there'll be some work to get that to the point of being the world's smartest computer scientist and the world's greatest composer and business strategist and so forth. But I, I can't see how that's more than years of work. I mean, it, conceivably, it could be months of work. I don't think it's decades of work, though. No? I mean, with the amount of money and attention that's going to go go into it. Then once you've gotten to that stage of having something, an AGI, which is the world's greatest computer scientist and computer engineer and mathematician, which I think would only be years after the first true breakthrough to human-level AGI, that and that system will improve its own source code. And of course, you could say, well, we don't have to let it improve its own source code. And possible that we somehow get a world dictatorship that stops anyone from using it to improve its own source code. Very unlikely, I think, because the U.S. will think, well, what if China does it? China will think, where, well, what if U.S. does it? And the same thing in, in many dimensions beyond just U.S. versus China. So I think the cat gets out of the bag and someone will let their AGI improve its own source code because they're afraid someone else is, is doing it, or just because they're curious about it, or because they think that's the best way to cure cure aging and end world hunger and, and do good for the world, right? And so then then it's not too long until you've got to super intelligence. So and again, the AGI improving its own source code and designing new hardware for itself doesn't have to take like five minutes. I mean, it might take five minutes if it comes up with a radical improvement to its learning algorithm. It might decide it needs a new kind of chip, and then that takes a few years. I don't see how it takes a few decades, right? So, I mean, it, it, it seems like all in all, from the first breakthrough to incontrovertibly human-level AGI to a superintelligence is months to years. It's, it's, it's not decades to, to centuries from now, unless we get like a global thermonuclear war or, or bioengineered virus wiping out 95% of humanity or some, some outlandish thing happening in, in, in between, right? So, so yeah, I, I think, will that be good or bad for humanity? Will that be good or bad for the sentient life in our region of the universe are, are then, to me, these are less clear than, than what I think is, is, is the probable timeline. Now, what, what could intervene in my probable timeline? I mean, if you, if somehow I'm wrong about digital computers being what we need and we need a quantum computer to build a human like, human level AGI, that could, that could make it take decades instead of years, right? Because, I mean, quantum computing, it's advancing fast, but there's still a while till we get the shitload of, 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 of qubits there, right? I mean, could be Penrose is right. You need a quantum gravity supercomputer. It seems outlandishly unlikely though. I mean, I, I, I I quite doubt it. I mean, if then, if then, maybe you're a couple of centuries off because we don't know how to build quantum gravity supercomputers. But these are all unlikely, right? So most likely, it's less than a decade to human level AGI, five to fifteen years to a superintelligence from from here in in, in my in my perspective. And uh, I mean, you could lay that out with much more rigor than I have, but we don't we don't have much time, and I've written about it elsewhere. Is that good for? humanity or for sentient life on the planet, I think it's almost certainly good for us in the medium term, in the sense that I think ethics roughly will 
evolve proportionally to general intelligence. I mean, I think the good guys will usually win because being pro-social and oriented toward collectivity is more, it's just more computationally efficient than being an asshole and being at odds, at odds with other, with, with, with other systems. So, I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an optimist in, in that sense. And I think it's most likely that once you get to a super intelligence, it's probably going to want to allow humans, bunnies and ants and frogs to, to, to do their thing and to help us out if, 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 if a plague hits us and exactly what its view will be on various ethical issues at the human level is not clear. Like, like w- what does a superintelligence think about all those foxes eating rabbits in the forest? Like, does it, does it think we're duty bound to protect the ra- the rabbits from the foxes and make like simulated foxes that have less acute conscious experience than a, than a real bunny or a real fox or whatever it is. Like I, I, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty, but I, I'm an optimistic about having beneficial positive ethics in a, in a, in a, in a super intelligence. And I, I tried to make a coherent argue, argument from this in a blog post called, uh, why, why, why the good guys will, u- will usually win. And you can, I mean, of course, that's a whole philosophical debate you could spend a long time arguing about. Nevertheless, even though I'm an optimistic at that level, I'm much more ambivalent about what will happen en route. Like in a, let's say it's 10 or 15 years between here and superintelligence. Like how does that pan out on the ground for humanity now is a lot less clear to me. And you can tell a lot of uh, thriller plots based on this, right? Like, so suppose you get early stage AGI that eliminates the need for most human labor. Okay. The developed world will probably give universal basic income after a bunch of political bullshit. What happens in the developing world? Who gives universal basic income in the central African Republic, right? It's, it's not especially clear or even in, in Brazil where I was born, right? I, I mean, you could maybe give universal basic income at a very subsistence level there, which Africa couldn't afford to do, but maybe the Africans go back to subsistence farming. But I mean, you've got certainly the makings for a lot of terrorist actions and, and for there's a lot of World War Three scenarios there, right? So and then you have the interesting tension wherein, okay, the best way to work around terrorist activity in World War Three, once you've got human level AGI, the best way is to get as fast as possible to a benevolent superintelligence. On the other hand, the, the the best way to to increase the odds that your superintelligence is benevolent is to not take it arbitrarily fast, but at least at least pace it a little bit. So the superintelligence is carefully studying each self modification before it puts it into place. Right. So then then the the strategy that seems most likely to work around human mayhem caused by people being assholes and the global political structure being rotten, the best strategy to work around that is not the strategy that has the best odds of getting fastest to a benevolent superintelligence rather than, than, than otherwise, right? So there, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of screwed up issues here, which Sam Altman probably understands at the level I laid it out here now also, actually, because I mean, he's a very bright person who's been thinking about this stuff for, for, for a while. And I don't see any, easy solutions to all these things. Like if, if we had a rational democratic world government, we can handle all these things in a quite, in a quite different way. Right. And we could sort of pace 
the rollout of advanced intelligence systems based on rational probabilistic estimates about what's the best outcome from each possible revision of the system and so on. You're not going to have a, a guarantee there, right? But you you would have a different way of proceeding. In, instead, the world is ruled in a completely idiotic way with people blowing up each other all over the world for no reason. And with the governments unable to regulate very simple things like like healthcare or, or financial trading, let alone something at the at, at, at the subtlety of, of AGI, we, we could barely manage the, the COVID pandemic, which was tremendously simpler than, than artificial general intelligence, let alone su- super intelligence, right? So I am, I am an optimist in the medium term, but I'm doing my best to, to do what I see as the best path to smooth things over in, in the shorter term. So I think things will be better off if AGI is not owned or controlled by any single party. So I'm doing my best to make it such that when the breakthrough to true human level AGI happens, like the next big leap beyond the chat GPTs of the world, I'm doing my I'm doing my best to make it such that when this happens, it's more like Linux or the internet than like OS X or T-Mobile's mobile network or something. So it's sort of open, decentralized, not owned and controlled by any one party. Not because I think that's an ironclad guarantee of a beneficial outcome. I just think it's less obviously going to go south in a nasty way than if one company or government owns it. But I, so I, I don't know if all this makes me really an optimist or not. It makes me an optimist on some yeah. levels and, and timescales. And I don't, I don't think that I disagree fundamentally with Josha on any of this. The only thing he said that I really disagree with is a. I think it's very. I don't think twenty cold winters in a row are going to are going to wipe us out. It might wipe out a lot of humanity, but we've got a lot of technology, and we've got a lot of smart people and a lot of lot of money. And I think there are a lot of scenarios that could wipe out eighty percent of humanity. And in my view, very few scenarios that will fundamentally wipe out humanity in a way that we couldn't bounce back from in in a couple of decades of of advanced technology de- 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 development. But I mean, that's an important point. Important point, I guess, for us as humans, in in the scope of all the things we're looking at, it's sort of a sort of a minute detail. All right, thanks, Ben and Yosha. If you wanted to respond quick, feel free to. If you have a quick response, yeah, I used to be pessimistic in the uh, short run, in the sense that when I was a kid, I had my great Asunberg moment and uh, was depressed by the fact that humanity is probably going to wipe itself out at some point in the medium term to near future and that, that that would be it with intelligent life on earth and uh, now i think that is not the case there will be uh i'm optimistic with respect to the medium term in the medium term there will be uh, ample conscious agency uh, on earth and in the universe and it's going to be more interesting than right now and uh, it could be discontinuities in between but uh eventually it will all be great and in the long run entropy will kill everything I don't see a way around this. So in the long run, I'm if you want to pessimistic, but this it's maybe didn't, not the point. Didn't you didn't you read didn't you read the physics of immortality? I did. It did not convince me. I think that was motivated reasoning. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, so six months from now, we'll have another conversation with both of you on the physics of immorality. Immortality. Immortality. <laughs> uh, we can also do well. physics Perhaps. of immorality. That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a blast hosting you both. Thank you all for spending over two hours with me. 
and the Toe audience. I hope you all enjoyed it, and you're welcome back, and most likely I'll see you back in a few months, in six months to one year. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a fun conversation, and it's uh, important stuff to go over. I'm, I'm really, as a final comment, I'd encourage everyone, like, dig, dig into Josh's uh, talks and posts and, and, and writings online, and, and my own as well, because, I mean, we've each, we've each gone over these things mm-hmm. at a, a much finer level of, of, of detail than we've been able to allude to. Ben has written far more than me, yeah. so there's a lot of material. And the links to which will be in the description, so please check that out. All right, thank you. I think that's it. I wanted to ask you a question, which we can explore next time, about IIT and the pseudoscience, and if you had any views on that. If you have any views that can be expressed in less than one minute, then feel free. If not, we can just save it. In- I mean, I, th- I think I think Tononi's Phi is a perfectly interesting correlate of consciousness in, 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 in complex systems. I, I don't think it goes beyond that. I agree. And, uh, one of the issues is that the theory does not explain how consciousness works in the first place. Another problem is that it has intrinsic problems that has basically, it either going to violate the church Turing thesis or it's going to be epiphenomenalist for purely logical reasons. That's a very, it's a very technical argument against it. The fact that most philosophers don't seem to see this is, uh, not an argument in favor of philosophy right now at the level of which it's being done. And I approve of the notion of uh, philosophy divesting itself from theories that uh, don't actually try to explain what they pretend to explain and uh, uh, don't mathematically work out and then try to compensate this by looking like a theory, by using uh, Greek uh, letter mathematics uh, mm-hmm to look more impressive or to make pseudo predictions and so on, because people ask you to, but it's, it's also not really Tononi's fault. But I think that Tononi is genuinely seeing something that he struggles to express. And I think it's important to have him in the conversation. And I was a little bit disappointed by the uh, letter because it was not actually engaging with uh, the theory itself at a theoretical level that I would thought was adequate to refute it or to deal with it. And instead, it was much more like a a number of signatures being collected from a number of people who later on instantly flipped uh, on a dime when uh, the pressure went another way. And this basically looked very bad to me that you get a a few hundred big names in philosophy to sign this, only uh, half of them later on coming out and saying, this is not what we actually meant. Uh, Hmm. So uh, I think that it shows that not just the IIT might be a pseudoscience, but there is something uh, amiss in the way in which we conduct philosophy today. And I think it's also understandable because it is a science that is sparsely populated, so we try to be very inclusive of it. It's similar to AGI in the old days. And uh, at the same time, uh, we struggle to discern what's good uh, thinking and what's deep thinking versus these are people who are attracted to many these questions and are still trying to find the right way to express them in a productive way. I think I think that, I mean, phi as a measure is fine. It's not the be-all, end-all. It doesn't do everything that's been attributed to it. And I guess anyone who's into the science of consciousness pretty much can see that already, that the frustrating thing is that average people who can't read an equation and don't know what's going on, being told like, oh, the problem of consciousness is solved. And that that that, that can be a bit frustrating, because when you look at the details, it's like, well, this is kind of interesting, but no, it, it doesn't quite quite do quite do all, all, all that. 
So, uh, but uh, I mean, why why people got hyped about that instead of much more egregious instances of bullshit is a is a, is, a, is a cultural question which we we don't have time to go into now. Well, thank you again. Thank you both. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.